I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. So, maybe you have a favorite podcast. Maybe you listen to episodes of that podcast more than once, so you don't miss a single detail. Maybe you find yourself wondering about the host. Who are they in real life? Would they want to be your friend? I swear I'm not fishing for compliments. It's just that I have a favorite podcast. It's all about my number one favorite TV show ever, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Especially when I'm feeling sad or anxious, which happens a lot these days, I submit fully to the pleasures of Slayer Fest 98. Slayer Fest features a series of hour-long episodes in which die-hard Buffy fans dissect every little moment in the show. A friend introduced me to Slayer Fest, and I became obsessed. I was drawn to the show's host, Ian, who made me laugh and admitted to crying through his favorite episodes of Buffy. Hi, I'm Ian Carlos Crawford. I host the Buffy the Vampire Slayer slash pop culture podcast Slayer Fest 98. I'm 37, I live in New Jersey, and I am currently single. Ian seemed to like all the things I liked. Most of all, a small blonde character who saves the world a lot. One reason I knew that he and I would get along in real life is that he also loves to talk about relationships. On his show, Ian winds up discussing every character's relationship motives— supernatural breakups, what an ex-demon would find attractive about a human. You know, everyday typical problems. As somebody who does what I do and also very much loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there are a lot of episodes that go through her breakups, the concept of soulmates, right? Like all of these things that play out in our real lives and and you go pretty deep into them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'll agree with me, Meredith, as a also huge Buffy fan. Sometimes people shrug it off as just like, oh, it's like Twilight. But I think their relationships are so much more detailed and nuanced in Buffy. It's almost impossible to talk about the show without discussing the relationships. Well, I agree. And I say this as someone who can absolutely watch an absolute shit ton of Twilight and be perfectly content. There's no comparison with Buffy, though, because... Ian and I could geek out about Buffy all day. But I'll spare you, I promise. I asked Ian to come on Love Letters because when I was first binging his podcast, I learned that he was going through a rocky stretch in his own love life. He was pretty open about it on the show. But I only got a piece of the narrative then, so I invited him on my show to share the full story. 
Just a quick warning, this story deals with death and some difficult details. Also, some names have been changed to protect people's privacy. When Ian was in his early 30s, he found himself in a pretty common situation in New York City, rotating roommates and job hunting. He'd just finished an internship at BuzzFeed and was looking for a new gig. So my roommate and I had been living in Astoria. He wanted to move. He was ready for a move to Brooklyn when our lease was up. And our friend, who was also my ex-boyfriend, whom I'll call Pete, had been visiting us a lot in New York, and he wanted to move with us. Pete and I had dated and then stayed close friends. It was very, like, you know, of the time. We were, like, 20, had a bad breakup, but then ended up becoming really good friends. He had been there for me through a bunch of breakups. When my grandmother first got sick, and we weren't sure... My grandma was a diabetic. She had a lot of health issues. Her and Pete were kind of the two closest, two very important people in my life. So my family's from New Jersey, like two hours outside of New York. Pete had his car... He heard that my grandma was sick and he knew how close we were. So immediately he was like, oh, when I get home from work, let me drive you home. And I was like, no, I I don't want you to have to drive me home. That's like such a long drive for you to have to, because it was on like a Wednesday and Pete had a nine to five. I was like, I really appreciate this. Like, I, I remember crying in the car and being like, I don't know like how I can thank you for this. Ian and Pete, despite this close relationship, are not the most compatible of roommates. Pete kind of liked to do his own thing. He just liked to be in his room, which was, you know, totally fine. It's just we didn't live well together. But we were so close, and I would like to think we loved each other so much that it was really was fine. The three roommates are still living in the Brooklyn apartment, right outside of Park Slope, when everything changes. On the 4th of July weekend that year, Pete's mother had texted me to be like, hey, I haven't had a, gotten a hold of him. Is he okay? My roommate and I went into his room because his door had been shut. He was very private. He sometimes would, if he had like a friend over or or a guy over or whatever, would just like keep his door shut. So we knew if his door was shut, don't bother him. He had come home, I think the night before. My memory's a little hazy here. And so we went in the room, we found him. He was clearly, had passed away. We had to call the police. It was, I can hands down say the worst day of my life. Ian later learns that Pete died of a complication from diabetes. But in the moment, he's not thinking about causes. He's just trying to get through every minute. Because we didn't know what happened, it was a crime scene. We had to be in that apartment for, I think it was like seven or eight hours, with the body, with a different cop coming in and out because they were so swamped, quote-unquote. They were like, oh, we got to wait for the coroner to get here, and they're on like some other jobs. We just sat there with him. It was absolutely miserable. We were taking turns, like, walking outside. You know, when the police first got there, the first thing they said to me was, are you guys drug addicts? Were you doing drugs? And I was like, what? No, I I don't know what happened. And they, like, kept questioning me about drugs because I'm sure they saw, like, oh, a gay man, it's gotta be some silly gay doing drugs, which was, you know, fun. I had to call his mother. I had to sign the papers, sign the release, identify the body. Ian is devastated by all of this. He and his other roommate slowly try to put their lives together and move on. But it's not easy. Ian does have one positive distraction, though. He'd recently started communicating with a guy we'll call Michael, a Twitter crush who lives in California, but sometimes comes to New York. Talking to Michael feels like a relief. He felt like exactly the right kind of person to be around someone like me who was grieving. He didn't make me talk about everything. He kind of let me talk about it if I wanted to. 
he who wasn't going to constantly ask me about the trauma I had gone through. And for me, he like didn't seem like he felt awkward around me. So I it was it felt like oh this is the perfect guy. He's chill. He's not feeling uncomfortable because I'm a miserable mess. But also I was a miserable mess. There's no like time limit on grief, which some people don't get. Well, there's also the the grief and the trauma. Like just going through the experience when you describe that day, it's that on top of the loss. I try not to be a jerk about it, but a lot of people will be like, oh, I went through the same thing. And I'm like, oh, no, unless you found the body, it's not the same thing. I promise. Because, yeah, it's like they're two separate things that are both equally awful and then throw them together. Oh, boy, was I depressed. Michael is Ian's escape from all that. We would FaceTime and he would smoke a bowl on his end. I would smoke a bowl on my end. And that kind of would be our date night. And I kind of, I don't know that I even thought of it as, oh, our relationship's progressing. It was just like, oh, I have a friend who's like really good at being there for me. Eventually, Michael decides to carry out a longtime desire to move to New York City. This means he and Ian can really be together. I was very much against us living together because I didn't want us to go from long distance to living together because I didn't feel like that would work. But then he proposed the idea of moving in. I talked to my roommate. My roommate was like, yeah, you know, you guys seem really cool. I think my roommate immediately regretted saying yes to it. Michael is very... He could live in, like, a dorm room. He had, like tie-dye posters that he wanted to tack to the wall. And I was like, hmm, can we, like, frame them? I don't want to tack them to the wall. And do we need all of those tie-dye posters? Like, hmm. Trippy posters aside, more serious problems emerge now that Ian and Michael are living together. And it was kind of like immediate, oh, this isn't really working, because he, he was a lot more understanding of how unhinged I was when we were just texting. And I think it's because I wasn't there 24-7. And once we moved in together, it was like he immediately couldn't handle me. For as good as Michael was on those long-distance dates, in real life, Ian finds him lacking in empathy. In retrospect, Ian says, this should not have been a major surprise. He would always say, well, I'm selfish. I'm just selfish. And I would always counter that with, you're not selfish. Like, I would always shrug it off as like, he's just ditzy. He just like doesn't get things. It's like, no, he told you, Ian, he was selfish. He was very upfront about saying he was selfish. I remember when we were visiting his family once, he said it to his mom. And I was like, what? Don't say that. Like, I just always, the mental gymnastics that I would do to be like, no, you're not selfish. That ended up being true. He wasn't lying about that part. (laughs) But Ian knows he can be a tough partner, too. He's still dealing with the aftermath of loss and trauma. The grief takes many different forms. Ian's in his early to mid-30s when all of this stuff is going on. With Michael, he has trouble figuring out what's just normal relationship stuff? And what's a red flag? And how many red flags are you supposed to see before it's time to call it quits? All of this is decided for him when Ian has another terrible day. My grandmother, who was like the my favorite person in the world, uh, had started getting very sick. She had COPD and she was older and a diabetic. And that brings like, you know, when you're older, it's just like that one big issue can bring a hundred other, you know, little things. So she kept having a lot of breathing trouble. My family kept it for me because I was quote unquote the depressed one. And at Christmas, in front of Michael, 
My brother chimes in to say, oh, you don't even know grandma's dying. And the crazy part was my grandma had mentioned it to me that she was dying. But when you're in a family of Puerto Ricans, everyone can be a little dramatic. And I took it as she's sick. She's just saying she's sicker than usual. My mother had said that, you know, a million times in the past to me that they were dying just as like a cover for them being sick. And so, yeah, I found out that she was like, they didn't know how much longer she had. This is devastating for Ian because his grandma really is his best friend. On his podcast, he tells so many stories about his grandma, and I love them. He often says what his grandma called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She simply said, La Buffy. When I came out to her, my mom, who, my mom is pretty liberal, my dad is more conservative, my dad actually was like, okay. My mom did all the cliche mom things of like, how could you really know? You, you know, you're only 19 or 18, you don't really know. And it's like, yeah, I do. And I went to my grandma's house, she was cooking dinner for me that day. And I was like, hey, grandma, like before I even walked in the house, like she opened the door and I was like, grandma, I got to tell you I'm gay. And she went, okay, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told your mother. So what? Do you still want empanadas? And I was like, yeah. And like, that was it. We would always joke that we were each other's dates to all the family parties. It's when Michael is away on a trip that Ian gets news that his grandmother has gone into hospice. This is really the end. And it's in this moment, on that same day he receives the terrible news, that Michael reveals his limits as a partner. He came home, and it was like that movie, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I like had, was getting ready. I had just gotten out of the shower. I opened the door. I was naked, and I was just like, hey, sweetheart. Gave him a kiss, and I was so happy to see him. And was like, let me finish getting ready. He was like, okay. And he sat on the couch with his luggage. And I finished getting ready. I went over. And he, I went over to him and he was like, we need to talk. And I think I immediately knew we had two small couches in our living room and I sat on the other one because I was like, ooh, I think I know what's happening. Michael, I felt, I don't even mean this in like a mean way. I just think he hit like his bandwidth of dealing with his like grief-stricken, depressed boyfriend. Ian knew before that things weren't exactly great with Michael. But still, he's crushed. He cannot believe that he is being dumped right now like this. But there's an important lesson here, I think. And yes, I heard it when Ian was talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We'll be back with that in a minute. We're back. So, Ian, who is still grieving the loss of his close friend, gets dumped on the same day, he learns his grandma, the most important person in his life, is going into hospice care. Let me explain how I first learned this and what I thought about it. And stay with me here, non-Buffy people. I promise this will make sense. So there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where the main character, Buffy, gets dumped by her boyfriend during one of the worst phases of her life— her mother has just had surgery for cancer. And as a vampire slayer, Buffy is under attack by the most powerful villain she's ever faced, an actual god. And this particular, and may I say it, mediocre boyfriend, ditches Buffy right in the middle of it all. Ian discussed this episode on Slayer Fest 98, and he was so upset about this plot point. How could Buffy's boyfriend break up with her when her life was falling apart? Who does that to someone who so clearly is in need of support? Without using names, 
Ian compared it to what Michael had done to him in real life. It was wrong, he said. I got dumped right before she passed away. And I remember being so upset. And it wasn't even because I liked the guy that much. But it was because it was like, I have so much going on. Couldn't this wait till later? Yeah. (laughs) And like, I feel like that's how Buffy... As a listener, though, and as a relationship writer, I disagreed with Ian's point. I mean, I didn't know Ian at the time. I certainly didn't know the man who dumped him. But I thought, if that man, Michael, wasn't really into the relationship, if he wasn't going to be there for Ian through his grandmother's death, it was better that he just got out of the way. It reminds me of what so many people write in to my advice column. How could my ex dump me now? I was just about to move. I just lost a parent. I was changing careers. I was broke. Yes, it is an additional blow to be told you've lost one more thing when things feel scary and bleak. But my opinion is that it's just better to get it over with, even at the lowest of lows, so you can go through the trials alone and ultimately emerge stronger. Because I'll tell you this, when Buffy's mediocre boyfriend, whose name is Riley, gets out of her way, she does incredible things. I mean, she saves the world. I have to say, I'm happy I was single when my mom got sick and died, and during other difficult times, or at least that I wasn't in an unfulfilling relationship at the time. I got through those things on my own and was able to surround myself with the right kind of company. And for you, I was thinking, I wondered what you actually got out of having a mediocre relationship out of the way as you took on all of these challenges. Like, I I don't know that him breaking up with you three months later or one day later or any other day would have been better. Can you talk about, like, at the time, what you thought of the timing and what you think of the timing now? So, you know, I give you a lot of credit, Meredith, because you're the one that made me, like, rethink it that way. I do think you're right. In the long run, Riley leaving and Michael leaving was for the better because was for the best because it just what would he have he wouldn't have helped and if the person wouldn't have helped they shouldn't be there right but I also think like if we're making Buffy parallels and when are we not right yeah it sort of forces that character to like Avengers assemble okay now I'm fully mixing my metaphors but um I love all of them though (laughs) oh I know right right where you're like okay chosen family assemble like, who are the people? Who are the people who are now going to be the people that hold me up and I can hold them up? So over time, as a single person, Ian does learn to help himself while he recovers from the death of his grandmother and from the breakup. He revisits friendships and abandons the ones that weren't working anyway. He starts figuring out how to deal, like a good slayer. I didn't know him then, and I could tell. In listening to the podcast, after a while, his voice sounded brighter. There was something that as a listener, just because I was listening to so much right in a row, that I heard in your voice, which was like a strength and happiness over time that had to have come out of whatever Avengers team you assembled. When you told me that, Meredith, that made me like really, that made my day when you told me that you could hear the difference in my voice on the podcast. Cause I, I guess I don't think about it like that. I, I guess I don't think anyone's like listening to me. They're just listening to like, you know, some people talk about Buffy and I, 
I, I, I think you're right. I think I don't know that I right. How would I have gotten there if I'd had a mediocre boyfriend who didn't like dealing with someone who's depressed? How would I have, I don't know where my life would have gone. I should note that Ian does say that he would not advise anyone to dump their significant other the very same day they get terrible news. I guess I can agree with that. Ian also says he's learned to trust his gut about red flags. At the end of the day, there were so many times that Michael showed Ian who he was, and Ian was too forgiving. Ian would be the first to say he's still working on this, but now he's much better about knowing when to walk. I think the problem is with Michael, I go back to like, oh, well, Ian, you did so often say like, this will be, this will do. I think of like that meme of the dog sitting at the table where it's like, this is fine and everything's on fire. I had a few friends say that, like when I've told them these stories, they're like, well, weren't those red flags? And I was kind of like, I mean, yeah, but I kind of took it as like, okay, these are just relationship issues and everyone has their own, like, I feel like everyone has their own, like, nope, this is too much point. And I, my problem is I don't really hit those points. In thinking about this, Ian sometimes reflects on a relationship he had right after he dated Pete so many years ago. The relationship was serious and very good. And at the time, he thought he might even marry the guy someday. But he was also pretty young. While I still do, like, romanticize that relationship as the only relationship I think of as really good, where we supported each other and whatever, we were also, like, 23. So, like, I feel like my brain wasn't fully formed yet. I was 23. And, like, it's easy to romanticize something, especially that happened so long ago at this point, and I think there is a point when you have to be like, oh, well, we're adults now. It's not going to be as like romantic. It's not going to be as mushy, but that's okay. But also you shouldn't just settle for someone who is telling you up front how selfish they are and you think it's like kind of cute because that's not cute. As I've gotten older since that last breakup and since, you know, two people in my life that were very important to me passed away, I've kind of been like, okay, I can say this is enough and I don't need to talk to this person anymore. And I'd like to think that moving forward, maybe if I was in another relationship, I would be like, okay, no, this, Ian, just do the thing, break up. I've thought a lot about this story during the pandemic. Having the wrong partner doesn't make the experience of what we're all going through less lonely or scary, right? You want a person who's truly in the bunker with you, no matter how hard it gets. Rather than being in a not-so-great relationship, there's more to gain from getting through it as a strong, single, powerful human being. You know, like Buffy. I have to say this because it, I mean, some people will not find it interesting, but when you talk about having to go through all of these terrible things and people being pulled away from you one after another and then having to have the strength to do that thing where you do rise like a phoenix and you say, I'm going to keep going. What scene do you think it makes me think of in Buffy? <laughs> Can you describe it? <laughs> Her boyfriend has gone evil. They're having a fight. No friends. No friends. And he's no. like, no friends, no whatever. Take all, Take all the way. What's left? What's and he goes to stab her with a sword and she catches it with her hands. Looks him in the eye and says, me. Me. hits him back with the handle of his own sword and does eventually defeat him. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's like one of the moments of Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith is our audience engagement manager. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Love Letters is also an advice column. Send your questions about your own relationships to loveletters at boston.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Learn more at loveletters.show. SlayerFest98 can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, Ian says season seven is pretty relevant when it comes to quarantining in a pandemic. I've been slowly going through season seven. Okay. A bunch of people packed in a house, you know, where they're like, it's kind of like the end of the world. They don't know what's going on. And everyone's like snapping at each other. You know, Faith is eating Andrew's Hot Pockets. I, I found I appreciated a little bit more going through it now than I have in the past. Interesting. So season seven is Pandemic Watch. Season seven is like, oop, it might be the end of the world and we're all crammed together in this one spot and can't really do anything else. Okay, that's good to know. But that is what <laughs> I will recommend to people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. From PRX.